The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. All right, all right. Would you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 2. The title for this morning's sermon is The Perfect Marriage. Somebody say The Perfect Marriage. Who, who brought their perfect marriage to church today? Did you? So the perfect marriage, uh, there, there is a perfect marriage and I'm going to tell you all about it. I want to just speak to you though, quickly though, if you're here and you're single, either uh, prolonged or recently, um, if you're single, don't think that this is not a sermon for you. This absolutely is a sermon for you and you'll see why. If you've been married uh, for 30 years and you're absolutely madly in love, 50 years, 10 years, if you're in the middle of a conflict, if you and your spouse are not talking to each other, but you are sitting shoulder to shoulder, you're in the right place at the right time. And um, it doesn't matter how you feel about marriage, whether you feel called to singleness or you are single and wishing you were married. I will tell you the only thing worse than being single and wishing you were married is being married and wishing you were single. <laughs> so I've never experienced that, but I hear it's awful. So we're gonna get into it. We're gonna get into it this morning, but I wanna, I wanna draw your attention um, to the foundational importance of marriage. Uh, our world, the world around us, the spirit of our age is attacking everything that is uh, precious to God. I don't know if you know that or not. And marriage has been on the chopping block for centuries. This did not start with legislation in the 90s. Um, marriage has always been under assault and it's been under assault from any angle that the, the spirit of this age can come at it, uh, whether it's divorce or homosexuality, it doesn't matter if it's polygamy, the enemy will find a way to try to ruin what's special and what's precious to God. And so we wanna be the people who take God at his word and who stand on the sanctity of the things that God has given to us that are meant to do what's best for each of us and all of us. And marriage is one of those foundational things. Um, I grew up, um, in it, my parents were committed to marriage in the church and they made it uh, 21 years. Um, and and uh, so I've experienced the, the commitment of marriage and also the effects of divorce personally. And so all of us have a different story and we're not here to compare stories. We're not here to compare pain. Um, but I grew up with friends who like wouldn't get married. Like in, in my peers, like marriage was like a thing. They would say things like, it's just a piece of paper. You ever heard that? Ah, it's just a piece of paper. I love her. It's gonna be fine. We've been together seven years. Um, and then I've had friends who would say like, well, if you get married, that's gonna ruin it. You ever heard that? Like, I want to ruin a good thing by getting married. Okay, well. Um, um, and and there's this, this thing that's happening now, if you're here and you're a young person, this thing that's happening now is that the weddings kind of become more important than the marriage. And so we're waiting three and four and five and 10 years because you have to plan the perfect wedding in the perfect scenario and it keeps getting derailed. And, and so there's this, this idea of everything has to be like Pinterest perfect before you can actually do it. And it, some people are investing more time in their wedding photos than their relationship, honestly. And so whatever, whatever the, the era is, and that will change, um, there's always going to be attacks on marriage, very subtle and very uh, profound. And so what I want to do is just talk to you very plainly about the scripture's clear teaching about marriage and describe for you the perfect marriage, which is available to all of us. And I hope that you come to experience it as well. Marriage is so foundational to Judeo-Christian faith that the Old Testament has an entire chapter of the Bible devoted to it. You may not know that or not. Some people are like, where did this marriage come from? And why do we do all these things? And um, I've officiated dozens and dozens of weddings. And I've done everything from like wooden crosses to unity candles to sand mixing, all of these different uh, parts of a wedding ceremony. Um, and a lot of people don't even understand where marriage came from in the first place. And so the verse for marriage is Genesis chapter two and verse 24. 
But almost all of chapter two itself, there's a little weird Sabbath thing that happens. The, the chapters and verse numbers, those aren't inspired. Um, but almost all of chapter two speaks to marriage and is about God creating man as male and female and then giving humans the gift that is the marriage relationship. And I want to draw your attention to that. And so look at Genesis chapter two with me, starting in verse five, which is where the chapter, in my opinion, ought to begin, but I wasn't around when they were doing this. And nobody asked me. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and, listen to this, there was no man to work the ground. So God's planning to have humanity have a symbiotic relationship with the earth. And it says, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the face of the ground. So God had installed a sprinkler system before the rain came. In verse seven, it says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verses 9 to 14 contain a description of the garden, its location, and the presence of these two trees, which are going to become very important, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And just so you wondered if work was a product of the fall, you would be wrong. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. This is establishing the relationship between God and man. Man is the image of God and the special creation of God, the crowning creation of God, but not God. So God is God and he makes the rules and this is the one rule. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. Somebody say not good. Now, this is going to stand out to you if you started reading in chapter one and verse one, because regularly you hear the Lord make something and it was evening and it was morning the first day, the second day. And he would say, and the Lord saw that it was good. 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 And at the end of creation, at the end of chapter one, after man has been created a male and female, but with no specificity, which is we're going to get in chapter two, it says, and it was very good. And so all you've heard about creation thus far is it was good. And then we rewind the tape from the end of chapter one, and we zoom in on the special creation of man as male and female in chapter two. And this is all about marriage, which culminates in verse 24. And so verse 18 tells us that after God had made only the man, it was not good that the man should be alone. And so God says, I will make a helper fit for him. Verse 19. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But look at this. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This is the biblical proof that dogs are not man's best friend. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. Verse 21. So look, God, God literally creates the man to oversee the whole earth, have dominion over it. He's naming things. He has authority. He has a calling. He's supposed to work the ground and keep it. And he's alone. And so this whole chapter is built around God showing the man made in his image the need for the woman made in his image. This is where this is going. And so look at this in verse 21. So here's what God did. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man 
And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, or sang, this is Hebrew poetry. If you're opening your Bible in front of you, you'll see it's indented. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And I wish I could read this to you in Hebrew and you knew what that meant and what it sounded like. And then verse 24, therefore, concluding, connecting word, therefore, for this reason, because of what you just heard, a man, so this is now zooming out from specific couple to universal truth, a man shall leave his father and mother because one comes from the union of two and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is speaking of the physical intimacy of the marriage covenant, which is where it ought to be contained. In verse 25, and here's the perfect marriage. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed completely known, completely vulnerable, with no comparison, together forever, completely complementary, known, loved, cherished, held with no sin, no temptation, no brokenness, no unmet expectations, no abuse or pain, the perfect marriage. And it only lasts for six verses. <laughs> And then, of course, uh, Eve and Adam eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, plunging the world under a curse, and, and, it, and the story goes on from there. And it's a big story, and if you stick around here long enough, you'll get a lot of it <laughs> before you die. However, what I'd like to do is to draw your attention to the realities of this marriage and then the mystery that God actually hid for ages that was not opened to humanity until the resurrection, after the resurrection of Jesus, and then ultimately to give you hope for whatever the situation that you're in today, single, married, happy, unhappy, uh, hurting, depressed, <laughs> uh, hopeful, whatever, you, wherever you find yourself as it comes to your relationships with God and your spouse, significant other, um, I know you're gonna find hope. So I wanna just pray and then ask God to help us. God, I thank you that you love us so much. that you want to be near us, that you want to heal all of our wounds, physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, that you have a beautiful rescue story and you want to bring us into it, not, not when we die right now today. So I just pray for all of us, Lord, that you would draw our attention to the perfect marriage and you would give us faith, hope, and love that we might not only personally experience your best, but also live in a world and bring a reality to people in pain that you have good things in store for everyone and you can be trusted. And so we love you, God. We thank you that you loved us first. And we just pray that Holy Spirit, that you would speak directly to each of our hearts. Help us, meet us at the place of our need. Would you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Um, that phrase, one of his ribs, is a little tricky. I remember when I was working construction, I heard one of the guys said, um, I was 
teaching. I was always teaching, uh, talking about the Bible. And one of the guys on my construction crew said, you know, there was a version of the Bible before the whole rib thing. And it said that God came to the man and said he would give him a perfect woman, but it was going to cost him an arm and a leg. <laughs> and the man said, what can I get for a rib? You know, that was the joke. Which is just ugly. And, um, but it's really an interesting... Um, the Hebraic form there, rib, is actually the word for side, and it's actually most often translated other side. And so this is poetry, and the poetry is meant to symbolize something. And what it's meant to symbolize is a splitting of God taking the one and splitting it into two, and then the marriage is actually bringing those two things back together. And so God goes to great lengths to show the man that he can't do what he's been made for and called to do with, by himself. That's the point of chapter two. Did you get that? I will make a helper suitable for him. The place helper is most often translated in the Old Testament and in the New speaks of God himself. He will be Israel's help. He will be the one to come to the rescue. He will do for Israel what Israel cannot do for itself. And of course, when Jesus is resurrected and ascended, who does he send but the third person of the Trinity who gets the name, the helper, the Holy Spirit. And so this idea of help is not like daddy's little helper, hold the flashlight, takes twice as long when I have your help as it would if I didn't have your help. This is the helper of this synergy of we can get done more together than either of us could individually, but it's more desperate than that. It's saying, without her, you can't do what I made you to do. And so you need her and she's from you. And so we're taking this thing from one to two, from two to one. And that's what marriage has really been about. And think about this for a second. There's a value here. We, we hear it was good, it was good, it was good, it was not good, and then the woman is made. And so we ought to, as Christian people who take God at his word, have, uh, have a value of women. And unfortunately, the world is always, the, the spirit of the age is always a, is wanting to shrink the value of women. Do you know that? Always, always, that's always been the case. Here, here and there, in history, there's been an elevation of women beyond men, but it doesn't last long. And then there's a weird reaction, and it's always been to suppress the value of women. And that's happening in our culture right now in a million ways, and I won't talk about it. However, that's always been the enemy's plan. And this passage for us by faith uh, adds value to women. The second thing it adds is dignity. 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 Our world wants to objectify women. And the scriptures from God's heart and from God's perspectives gives dignity to women. The woman is handcrafted by God. Now, so is the man. However, God makes the man by taking dirt and making a dirt man. I mean, that's what Adam means. Do you know that? Dirt man. That's what Adam means. What are we going to call it? Dirt man. And so God goes, God goes from potter, but when he wants to make the woman, he doesn't just grab more dirt, does he? Now, he could have, had a, he could have shown equality by making the woman just the same way he made the man. Couldn't he have? that's not what happened. No, God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. God takes one of his ribs and then God crafts the woman from the rib. God goes from being potter to being anesthesiologist, orthopedic surgeon, and genetic engineer. That's how much effort went into making women. Can we applaud God? He's awesome at what he does. And, and he did that because as men, we need to, we, we get so high on ourselves. We think we're the best thing ever. The world should revolve around us. And God's like, you need a real strong reminder of the value and dignity of women, but your woman. And so he writes it into the story. And the third thing that God adds in this narrative is equality. Uh, and Adam got that. This at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We are made of the same stuff. 
Imagine what the man would be like with the woman if she had been made from the dust like Adam was. She'd say, hey, God made us the exact same way. He's like, well, the dust he used for me. (laughs) I'm just saying. You can imagine the loops that we go through. So here we have value, dignity, equality in the marriage relationship. Um, And there there is a, a religious approach to men and women. Uh, I don't know if, you're, if you've been in, 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 the, in the church world for any length of time, there's kind of two schools of thought about how men and women ought to relate, how marriages should be structured and how church, churches should be led with men and women. One is called um, complementarianism. And it really is um, patriarchy. This is where men have these specific roles and they all dominate women and women are subjugated under men. And that's supposed to be seen as a, a divine origin. And these passages are used to uh, build that model. And then there's a side that's egalitarian that says men and women are the same. And so you ought to bring, they're the same in value, dignity and equality. And so you ought to bring your particular skills and weaknesses into a complementary relationship. And there ought not to be a hierarchy between men and women. I actually used to be in the complementarian patriarchal side and through my study of the Bible actually moved to the egalitarian side personally. If you've ever, if you'd like to hear more about that, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. It took me seven years, so it won't fit into a 30 minute sermon, but I'm using the English standard version Bible um, and I came to the conclusion using this Bible, this Bible was translated by complementarian patriarchs. Um, and yet it was even through the scriptures that I came to the conclusion that they were in fact wrong. So um, we can talk more about that in the future, but not today. I want to zoom out a little bit because marriage in Genesis chapter two and verse 24 wasn't just about the three things that we see. That is um, a, a complementary and companionship relationship whereby God would promulgate the species. And so all of us have a deep inner longing for companionship, friendship, romantic love, and that is fulfilled in the marriage relationship or can be theoretically. And then we also have an eager desire to, um, you know, replicate. And so that gets fulfilled in the marriage relationship. And God's all about being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Do you see this? And so God gets those things done. But his primary purpose for the marriage relationship was actually to illustrate a larger reality, a reality hidden for ages and yet revealed in this last age through the apostle Paul. And so Ephesians chapter five, um, verse 22, actually, I'm going to skip 22 I'm going to go down to 31 because we don't have as much time as I'd like to, and I'm going to get into First Peter's version of this. So um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, if you have that, if you can find that on the screen, that'd be helpful. Um, he quotes, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So he's quoting the marriage verse from, from the Old Testament. And then verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. So buckle up. Don't, don't miss this. Don't think this is trivial or you understand it. I'm saying that that verse refers to Christ and the church. He's saying every single marriage as defined by God and established by God is actually a thumbnail of a much larger picture. And that picture is the love story between God and humanity. That story is of a God who designed a people made of the same stuff in his image, who longs to be with them forever, who under a curse are lost to him. And so in self-sacrificing love, he becomes the rescuing prince and bridegroom. And so actually Adam and Eve's brief perfect marriage is not the Bible's perfect marriage. The perfect marriage that's held out for us in scripture is between Jesus and those he died to save. And that's profound. And so that 
reality now becomes the source of strength and motivation to love one another the way Christ loves us. And so verse 33 says, however, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so this has implications on the way we relate to each other. And so we zoom out. I brought props today. I usually don't do props. I'm not like a prop person. But honestly, this started because I was really excited after all these many dozens of weddings that I've done. I've never done a knot tying ceremony and I've always wanted to do one. And so the bride and groom from yesterday was, um, I got a lot of stuff in here, was uh, planning to do a knot tying ceremony and I was super stoked. I was like nerding out on it. And then we did the rehearsal on Friday night and I was like, and this is where we're gonna do the knot tying ceremony. And then they were like, no, we decided not. No pun intended. And so um, if we take, if you take the, the knot tying, you guys, you guys say tie the knot, right? And so we, we have this euphemism, but it comes from this, this uh, practice of knot tying or hand fasting. Some of you have seen hand fastening. And um, so, but the, the knot itself takes two individual strings or ropes and creates them into one. Now I'm not a knot person. I didn't grow up in Boy Scouts and I'm not a fisherman. And so I don't know a whole lot about knots. I'm definitely not a sailor. Um, but if you take, you know that first knot that you tie when you tie your shoes, just that simple loop? If you just take that simple loop and you tie it with one knot around the other one, that's it. And that's not a strong knot. You guys know that can pull right out, right? Just like that. But then you do the same thing with this rope on this knot and you just tie this. It's called a fisherman's knot. Some of you are like, I knew that coming in. Oh, good for you. Uh, <laughs> either one of these knots can come apart, but when you, when you tie them this way, they come together and then the, the harder you pull them, the tighter they become. And this, I love this because these are very simple knots. I, who have no knot knowledge, was able to tie these. I was ready to do it publicly. I just did, for those of you listening on the audio. Um, but what I loved about this is now that the two ropes have become one. Do you realize this? And like marriage is hard. Have you guys tried being married? Goodness gracious. They did not prepare us for this. We did premarital counseling. Crap, all of it, total, total garbage. They did, I'm sorry to use a dirty word in church. If you don't let your kids say that word, you can chastise me in the car. However, I'm telling you, after 20, we're gonna be married 20 years in a week and a half. 20 years, which is like the new 50, by the way, honestly. Um, but the lessons we've had to learn the hard way, Lord Jesus, help us, right? And so there's stress and pressure. And I love this illustration because, you know, that pulling hurts and that stress is painful. But when you have, what, when you have faith in what God asks you to do and you, you tie the knot, you go into the covenant expecting to stay together, the adversity actually can strengthen your relationship. Do you realize that? And I love that picture. I wish we could have done that in the wedding. Um, but it's a beautiful picture. Tie the knot. I want to zoom in now. Sorry, that was irreverent. I just tossed it down. Uh, I want to, let me zoom in. Let me zoom in. I have like no time left, so stick with me. Um, 
zoom in to 1 Peter chapter three. That's why I didn't get into Paul's version of this. All the apostles, when they address like household codes, they use what would have been the Aristotelian or Platonic approach. And so all the household codes in the ancient Near East were based on Roman, Greco-Roman uh, teaching, philosophy. And so they had all these household codes and people would have been very familiar with them. And so the scriptures, they're excited back there. what I tell you? what I tell you? It's all about what's happening back there. Uh, the, everyone in the ancient Near East would have understood the household codes and the scriptures actually play off of those household codes, which is funny because a lot of people get hung up on the fact that the Bible says wives ought to be submitted to their husbands. Submit yourself to your husband. And you're like, obviously there's subjugation there. <laughs> you don't understand. If you were to go, go Google Platonic or Aristotelian household codes, women are merely talked about and never addressed. A woman in the ancient Near East wasn't, wasn't worthy of addressing publicly. She was spoken of as the property and responsibility of the man. And this is what you compare the scripture to. And so you ever ask that question, like why does it always start with the woman? Wives, be subject to your husbands. You ever ask that question? Why are the, because it was profoundly egalitarian, dignifying and adding equality and value for the writers of scripture to address the wives as autonomous individuals with power to submit themselves. Not under some binding law that made them nothing more than property to the husband who owned them. Do you see how powerfully revolutionary this is? And yes, it gets lost on, on our modern minds. So Paul does that, Peter does the same thing. So Peter, 1 Peter 3, 1 starts with the word likewise. Somebody say likewise. Like the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. Likewise is referring to something else, which happens to be where Peter starts actually not with the wives, but with the slaves. He says, listen, you're a slave. Here's the kind of slave you should be as a Christian. Now it's not making a polemic and a defense for slavery. Slavery is bad all the way through. People should not be owned. That, that goes against the dignity, equality, and value of the human being, right? This is what freedom is based upon. And yet as a Christian slave, here's what it looks like for you. You take your power and authority and dignity and, as, as a person and you offer it up in a way that draws attention to God. And so he says the same thing. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, this has been used in the school I grew up in to say, women, shut up and don't say anything and just do whatever he wants. And by that, you'll, he will, you will make him happy and he'll turn into this magical person, but he doesn't. He turns into a tyrant that expects you to be exactly what he wants all the time and never does anything differently. So that's garbage. That doesn't work at all. But there is something that's going on here. We'll talk about it. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I'm not saying you should call your husband Lord, by the way. Um, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This is amazing. And then he gives one verse to the husbands, verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, what Peter is doing here is he is giving new tools for your toolbox. And he starts with the ladies and he does that because he's adding dignity and value, which would have been unheard of and unexpected. Now, if you have a toolbox at home and you don't make cool stuff, you probably have some tools like these ones. You probably have this wimpy baby hammer. 
that a 16-penny nail would bend over. You're not doing any framing with this hammer, are you? You are hanging picture frames on the wall. You probably have a screwdriver with two different tips, something like this, and a pair of pliers. If you're really, really good, you have both WD-40 and duct tape, and that's really all you need. Can I get an amen? Right? It's really all you need. However, however, God wants you to build something beautiful. And these things, these are not sufficient tools for you. These are the default tools you come with. God wants you to build something beautiful. Um, this is what God wants to give you. You ready for this? He wants to give you power. He wants to give you power tools. Um, this, this right here, this little reciprocating jigsaw, this can do things that none of those tools can. If somebody said, I need you to cut out this shape from a sheet of plywood, and they handed you those four tools and said, could you figure it out? You'd be like, nope, not gonna happen. So if you're feeling a little hopeless in your marriage, here's what God wants to do for you. He wants to swap out your tools, all right? So I want to give you some power tools this morning, ladies. Now, the Apostle Peter, he's kind of a man's man, and he does this by drawing attention to what the typical woman comes completely equipped with from birth. Are you ready? These are the tools that most women have. Forgive the stereotypes. This is what I see in the text. These are the main tools that I have seen most women have and most women use. Nagging, immodesty, manipulation, and being moody. <laughs> My wife is here. She is in the front row, okay? So we're just getting real, and I'm going home with her, all right? We have one vehicle here today, so this won't get weird, all right? Uh, he doesn't actually name these, but notice how he says, without a word. He says, women, you don't need to use the screwdriver. I'm going to give you a better tool. Without a word, by your conduct and the way you, you interact with him, you actually will have more power to build this relationship than the old tools. Now, the, the Old Testament's filled with verses about nagging. It says things like, it's better to live on the corner of your own rooftop than with a quarrelsome wife. It is better to live in the desert with no tent. A, a nagging woman is like a constant drip. Drip, 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 drip. Some of you are not laughing. This is getting dangerous. I'm going to speed things up. There's, this, there's a nagging that happens, and it's by default. It's kind of the way that I have noticed. I have four sisters and three daughters, a mother and a wife. So I'm speaking from some experience here, okay? Um, there's just an impulse to, to nag. I got my wife, um, oh, I wanted, actually didn't buy it for her. I was going to buy her this mug. I showed her a picture of it because she kept asking me to do this one particular house project. And she kept asking and asking and asking. And I, got, I saw this mug, and it said, if a man says he'll do it, he'll do it. You don't need to remind him every six months. Right? So there's this, there's this impulse to just go at it again and again and again and again. And, the, and Peter's saying, listen, trade in the screwdriver for a power tool. And that power tool is without a word, living this way is going to have an effect on him. Now, this is a to you need a totally new toolbox. This is if, if you ever heard a sermon that was like, do this one thing, it'll change everything. And you're like, it didn't work. It's not going to work. You don't just need that one tool. So we, we trade in nagging for this respectful and pure conduct. And then immodesty, immodesty. This is just women's go-to. It changes, it changes uh, in eras and in ages. So young women in particular, and younger's getting older and older, uh, there's, there's an impulse to use your body to get attention, either as a manipulation tool for your man or as a way of showing him what attention you can get from other men. And so there's an immodesty that's kind of like sexual in nature. And it's rampant. It's everywhere. It's what sells everything. And it's, it's in and out of the church. And so this is something that the, uh, the scriptures speak to. You just use your stuff, you know? Shake what your daddy gave you or whatever. I don't know what it is. You, you stick it out there and you get the attention and you manipulate based on the attention you can get. Here in First Peter, he's addressing a little bit of an older crowd. He's basically saying, don't dress up like the women who show the world they need no man. 
I'm so well-to-do, I don't need a man. And so you're all done up with all of the expensive stuff. And so this is a way of showing independence. But whether it's you showing off or you showing off, it's still you using this to control this. Do you see that? And so Peter's saying, trade in that natural tool you came with that actually does work. It just doesn't give you the outcome you want. You want to destroy your marriage? You want to attract the wrong kind of guy? Use immodesty. You want to build a marriage? You want to build something beautiful? Then spend the time getting your soul ready. I'm blessed. I have a wife who can look that beautiful in like 12 minutes. I'm serious. I've seen this take an hour and a half. I told you I have sisters, right? So I have a wife that can get ready in 12 minutes, but I also watch her every single day spend whatever time it takes to get her soul ready. And so there's a, there's a hidden adorning that's beautiful. I'm telling you, I would rather be married to a woman who puts on a baseball cap and some workout clothes, but wakes up to bind her own soul to God's power and to find forgiveness and strength and love and hope. And so ladies, get your soul ready. Don't forget your soul. Don't spend all all your time in front of the mirror in your bathroom and forget this one, okay? Third one is manipulation. And this is, there's 10,000 ways this gets used. I don't even have time to get into all the ways that women can manipulate. I love this, even in the Bible. You remember the wedding at Canaan? You remember this? When, when Jesus' first miracle, when they come up, the, the worship team's gonna kick me off the stage. Uh, when they're, they're like, Jesus, we're out of wine. And, and they're looking at him and his mother's looking at him. And they're like, Do, he, Jesus is like, my, woman, my hour has not yet come. He's like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And Mary's like, just do whatever he tells you. And then walks away. Like Mike drop manipulates the Lord Christ. <laughs> it's right in the Bible. So just women have this power. I don't understand it. It's magical. Uh, but you can manipulate. And that power of taking control over through manipulation is being inverted to say, what does it look like for you to take all of that authority, dignity, value, equality, and, and submit it? And watch what happens when you do. It starts to build something beautiful. And then the last thing is, it's just, it's just easy to be fearful and negative and moody. Now, listen, I say moody and I say that I understand the whole women's cycle. Like I said, four sisters, three daughters. I know where this is going. I just think it's, it's really merciful of the Lord that he lines up all of the women in the house on the same week. You know what I mean? Because this, be, this could be ongoing, never ending, depending on how many women are in your household. So I will never criticize a woman for being moody when those levels of hormones are rushing through their bodies. I just thank God it's not my body experiencing that. And I just get chocolate and whatever it takes. How can I serve you during this all brief time? However, it's just easy to get totally negative and fearful and project a terrible future and just get into a funk. And so Peter ends by just saying, um, be like Sarah who did good and didn't fear anything that's frightening. Just, Just fearless and virtuous. And then likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And I just got to talk to the guys. Guys, we're simple, okay? I remember seeing this graph about like, how do you, how do men and women work? Do you ever see this picture? This is like, I remember, I remember hearing a, I remember hearing a, uh, some of you are going to need to get your mind out of the gutter. I know what you're thinking about. Uh, I remember hearing a preacher say one time that he had good news and bad news. The good news is that there are two secrets that will unlock understanding women. And the bad news is that nobody knows what they are. So, 
But I'm here to tell you that it takes two to tango. And this is why, ladies, maybe you've tried some of these things before and they didn't work. It only works when you have two people equally committed to God's vision of a perfect marriage. Do you know that? And so the guys, we, we need the same instruction. And so I just have two more little props. These. Okay. Gentlemen, this is you. This is a saucepan. Okay. This is a wine glass, particularly for reds. And here Peter says, listen, guys, you can't treat her like you treat your friends. You can't treat her like you would treat yourself. She is not you. And a lot of women get hung up on this weaker vessel thing as though there's something missing or less than in a woman. That's completely not the point of the whole book. And so what does he mean? Well, this is weaker than this. You do not wash this with a Brillo pad, do you? You don't drop this in the sink or throw it under a cabinet with 12 others like it. You take care of this. You treat it with gentleness and care. And you, you're careful because it can break easy, right? And yet it does not make it more valuable. Listen, if you're drinking red wine out of this, you have a problem, all right? I'm just saying. I'm saying we got big issues. And so this is necessary. But you got to recognize, men, how you treat your woman matters. Does she feel valued? Does she feel cared for? Is she paying particular attention? Listen, I make the joke about understanding women. You don't have to understand women. All you have to do is live according to understanding, according to knowledge. Spend your life getting to know your woman. Women in general are different than men, yes, but God's only called you to know and love one. And so study her. Be patient with her. Learn her. Learn her edges and curves. And can, can you ever break a glass trying to put your hand in there? You ever done that? Just, I have done that before. Very dangerous. The more familiar you are with her heart, her intellect, her feelings, her experience, her past, the more you understand her, the more you will be able to work with her to build something beautiful. Listen, the perfect marriage is not your marriage. If you're single here, it won't be the marriage you're dreaming about. And you could be in the worst situation ever and your marriage is barely hanging on. This may be the last time you were gonna try church together this morning for all I know. But the perfect marriage is the marriage of the lamb. It's the marriage that the God who did nothing wrong and always did the right thing, gave up everything to get back for himself a bride that was estranged and lost broken, cursed. He became a curse that in him we could become the righteousness of God. The Bible begins with a wedding and the Bible ends with a wedding. Revelation chapter 9, 7 to 9. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her gifted to her the grace of God to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, those empowered by the spirit of God. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Did you know that you're invited? 
Maybe you're hopeless in your own relationship. Maybe you're lost and hoping for a relationship or something better. Maybe there's a brokenness in you. Maybe there's a hopelessness in you, but God has the perfect marriage for you. And it's not to the spouse you're with now or the perfect person of your dreams. It's when you come into a relationship with Jesus. He's the only one who will love you right, love you well and love you forever. But when you become his, you will get all the tools you need to build something beautiful, amen. God, I thank you and praise you for your work here today. And I know that it will continue in our hearts. And so I pray we would have faith to receive it and that you would do what only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Sorry to the worship team for taking up all the time. Still getting used to this. Um, We support a network of counseling centers and their cards are available on the back table. If you haven't tried that yet, definitely try that. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Thanks for spending your Sunday morning with us.